everyone. Welcome to Historically Black, a production of APM Reports in the Washington Post. I'm Heaven Nagatu. And I'm Tracy Clayton. And we are the hosts of the amazing podcast, Another Round with Heaven and Tracy. What, what? But this week we are guest hosting Historically Black. This fall, the Smithsonian's National Museum of African American History and Culture opened in D.C., As part of its coverage of this event, the Washington Post invited people across the country to submit photos of objects that represent their own personal and family connections to Black history. Each week, this podcast spotlights one of those objects and the stories behind it. My name is Gavril Robinson, and the object I submitted to Historically Black is my mom and dad's wedding photo. My mom is in her wedding gown and my dad is in a suit with the ascot looking very dapper. Gavril Robinson is a writer who lives in Clemson, South Carolina. Her parents were married in 1957 and they recently celebrated their 59th wedding anniversary. Gavril says she submitted the photograph to Historically Black because of what she doesn't see enough in popular culture. Images of Black couples in loving, long-term relationships. Her grandparents were married for nearly 70 years. All my sisters and brothers are married. I have so many friends who have been married for decades. And, you know, I just wanted to show that photo, show my truth as well as my friends and other people I knew. Gavril is 52 years old now and grew up watching TV shows like Good Times and The Jeffersons. She says that those programs, and later ones like The Cosby Show, depicted married Black couples who loved each other. She says she rarely sees that now. Now, if you do see a Black couple, they're at each other's throats. And if you don't really know any better, you would believe that that's the reality across the board, when it really is not. Tracy, you know how I be watching white people family dramas? Yes. There are zero things like that for black people. Mm. You have Blackish, which is a very popular show, but it's a comedy. Right. It's a comedy. There's just nothing quite like your parenthood version for a black family. Right. Or Six Feet Under. So Gavril wants to see exactly that. The black version of a full-on epic drama like Parenthood, which follows a white family, the Bravermans. Like instead of the Bravermans, they're like the Benjamins or something like that. Now, some might argue that TV features more diverse Black families than ever in history, and that movies and popular fiction are the places where multidimensional Black representation goes to die. But regardless, Gavril was one of many people who submitted items to Historically Black to highlight the existence of committed, loving relationships among African Americans. One person sent in a photo of her great-grandparents' wedding rings. Another person sent in a raft of love letters written between her great-grandfather and great-grandmother in the 1890s. And another, who we'll hear from in a moment, sent in wedding photographs from both her and her husband's family. In this episode, we will explore the history and meaning of marriage among African Americans. We will look closely at a couple of real-life love stories. I'm told that they exist. I hear that they do. (laughs) Uh, Maybe I'll find out for myself one day. All right. Portraits, if you will, of two very different but equally powerful bonds. Let's get into it. My name is Paula Pennabrit, and I submitted a series of family photographs depicting marriages both from my family and my husband's family. 
Both of us come from families where people have had lifelong marriages since as long as black people in America have been legally permitted to marry. Paula Penn Nabrit lives in Columbus, Ohio, and runs a management consulting firm. She was married for more than 30 years and raised three boys with her husband, Charles Nabrit. He passed away in 2013. The photographs Paula submitted included the wedding of her grandparents in 1928 and of her in-laws in 1945. Paula submitted these photos because, like Gavril Robinson, she believes they contradict the common image of dysfunctional Black families often featured in popular media. My experience as a Black person doesn't match up with what's depicted in terms of Black families, and I was glad that I had photographic evidence of parents, grandparents, and great-grandparents and what their actual experience has been living in the United States. One big piece of that actual experience has been entering into stable, long-term marriages. My mother, my grandmother, my great-grandmother were all married for the entirety of their lives to really, really strong, very present Black men. Studies show that fewer and fewer American families look like the nuclear families that Gavril and Paula grew up in. This is even more so the case among African Americans who are less likely to marry than any other racial group in the U.S. One statistic. In 2012, 36% of Black people 25 and older had never been married, compared to 16% of white people. African Americans also have a higher rate of poverty than other groups. And we know financial pressures are always hard on a marriage. I think it is an easy out for people to presume that marriage is something for middle class and upper middle class people. But historical analysis really debunks that because in point of fact, black people have been questing to marry even when marriage was not legally recognized among black people. For Paula, the fact that marriage among Black people was not always legal makes marriage among African Americans today even more meaningful. So let's take a moment to talk about the history of Black marriage during slave times. Dinah Ramey Berry, a historian at the University of Texas, Austin, studies Southern slavery. She says that although it was not technically legal for slaves to marry, many did so anyway. Sometimes they had the slave master's permission, and sometimes they didn't. These ceremonies could be as formal, um, where they're exchanging vows, they're reading scriptures from the Bible. And at other times, the bride and groom might jump the broom, a ritual where the couple literally hops over a broom to seal their wedding vows. Then you also have people that just did a private ceremony under a tree. They might have exchanged what little possession they had. It may or may not have been a piece of jewelry. It could have been a button. It could have been a certain type of rock or stone or what have you. Some people exchanged nothing. They just held hands and they said, we're husband and wife. Many enslaved people were not allowed to marry partners of their choice. For instance, enslavers often picked certain men and women to reproduce with each other if the slave master thought they were strong field laborers. Now, there are a number of other enslaved people who were denied marital relationships with somebody who they loved because the owner was using the the woman as a sexual partner or concubine. Rape was a grim reality of slavery, as was the constant threat of being sold away from one's family. Married couples always faced the prospect of being separated permanently and losing their children. The average enslaved person was sold about four times in a lifetime, which meant many marriages were destroyed when one person was auctioned off. 
People who were enslaved often had a string of marriages that occurred as spouses were torn from each other. Some people chose never to marry. They wanted to be spared the loss. For those that that wanted to be a part of a family and to use the family as a survival mechanism and for support and for love and for care, family meant everything to them. This is easy to see when you read newspapers published during slave times. Many newspapers have runaway advertisements for slaves, and they'll talk in there about how, you know, this particular person was running away to, to find her husband who had been sold, you know, a month ago or who had been sold to Alabama or who had been sold to Texas. So you see evidence about what marriage meant through runaway advertisements that mention that they're looking to connect with relatives. Barry says the importance of marriage bonds could also be seen once enslaved people were freed. Some of the things that they tried to do immediately was, one, to solidify their unions. A number of them went to justices of the peace. They wanted to have ceremonies. They wanted to be married, and they wanted the certificate. Given the obstacles enslaved people face as they sought to form and maintain family bonds, Paula Penn Nabritt says it's incredibly powerful for African Americans to choose to marry even today. The fact that her own family members have opted to marry and stay married as far back as she can trace their history speaks to the power of that choice. One of the photos that Paula submitted to Historically Black features her mother and father on their wedding day. The year is 1950, and Paula's mother, Mildred Penn, is wearing a long white gown and matching veil. She and the groom are cutting a four-layered wedding cake. Mildred says she met her husband, Washington L. Penn, at the Pentecostal church she attended in Columbus, Ohio. He came to visit the church one Sunday, and on his second visit, she was ready for him. I stood outside the doorway because this was a young man who had on a beautiful cashmere sweater and argyle socks, and I met him at the door and introduced myself because I thought he was from a family that had money because he was so well-dressed. But come to find out, he wasn't. (laughs) Mildred and Washington soon began dating, and within a year, they decided to marry. Mildred was 19. Washington had faced fierce racism and exclusion growing up in Youngstown, Ohio. It was also bad when he returned home from World War II, where he served in the Army. Washington attended Ohio State University on the GI Bill, though as a black man, he was barred from living on campus. He continued to face barriers when he began looking for work. Even with his college degree, he still had had a terrible time finding a good job. Black men just were not hired for positions. They were hired for jobs. And I will never forget when he was offered a job running the elevator at the union store downtown. That was the best they could do for him. Paula says her parents' marriage kept her father from going crazy in a racist world. Quite frankly, if it hadn't been my, for my mother, my father would have been in a constant state of rage. It's hard for a black woman, but it's so much harder for a black man. And I think black women, I think to most part, realize this. That rage that builds up inside of a black man. Here I am, I'm supposed to be taking care of my family, and I can't even get a decent job. How does a black man cope with that over and over and over again? I can remember a couple times when he was going off, my mother, we'd be in public, and my mother would try to help him calm down. And his line that we laugh about now is when he would say, don't ever interrupt me when I'm correcting the white man. (laughs) Washington held several different jobs, including with the state of Ohio, 
Then he became a manager at Western Electric. Mildred had a full-time job with the Defense Department. Mildred says Washington was adamant that their children be able to have everything white children had. He insisted on taking them ice skating, something they had never seen black people do, and staying in places like the Plaza Hotel in New York. In his mind, I think because of what he had gone through, he didn't want his children to have to be deprived of anything that was out there for them. They could get it. Mildred didn't feel as driven as Washington to offer their children what white kids had, but because she was married to him and because she loved him, she supported that vision completely. Washington supported Mildred, too, and that mutual respect, she says, was the foundation of their bond. We're a family that's very strong. Even today, we've been having dinner together, going to church together as a family every Sunday for for 40 years. (laughs) Mildred and Washington Penn were married for 64 years until Washington died in 2014. Historian Dinah Berry says strong Black relationships like the one shared by Mildred and Washington have existed across the centuries. I think that there is Black love, and there's Black love in every generation today. There are long-standing, long-lasting marriages. There are African-American couples that have been married 70-plus years that are alive today. Um, But marriage is complex, just as relationships are. And the complexities of Black love and marriage shows up in slavery and in freedom. Reverend Candy Holmes knows something about the complexity of relationships. She lives in Maryland and is a minister with Metropolitan Community Churches, or MCC, a welcoming progressive denomination. Growing up in Washington, D.C., Candy saw marriage as the cornerstone of her extended family. Our families were very knitted together, and we got to help one another And so if one family member or part of our family was down, my parents would help them. And if my parents were down, you know, someone would help us. And so the marriage helped to create community and family in the black community in a way that was deep and meaningful. When Candy was a girl, she looked forward to getting married and creating that kind of community herself. And so when... I realized that I was gay or I was a lesbian and thought that that was not possible for me. It was the it was probably one of the most devastating notions that I've ever had in my life, that I would not be able to get married because I was a lesbian. Candy met Reverend Darlene Garner in 1994. Darlene was the pastor of an MCC church in Northern Virginia, and Candy was the choir director of a church in D.C., They became a couple in 1996. They never thought marriage was a possibility. Before they met in 1994, Candy and Darlene were each in different phases of their journey to come out as a lesbian. Candy says she grew up with a certain amount of denial about her sexual identity and was engaged to men five different times. It never felt right, though. By the time she met Darlene, she had come out to a number of people, but not all. Something changed, though, as her relationship with Darlene blossomed. When Candy's father died, there was no doubt that Darlene would accompany her to his funeral. Candy spoke to family members just before the funeral began. And I asked them, I said, you know, don't think you're protecting me by saying something that's not true. Tell the truth. If someone asks if I'm gay, say yes. I'm not ashamed, and I don't want you to be ashamed for me, and nor do I want you to protect me. I think 
them seeing me step forward in the various ways that I did helped them to know that my love for Darlene and our love for each other was real and it was deep and it was worth standing up for. Darlene is 68 and grew up in Columbus, Ohio. When she came out as a lesbian in the early 1970s, she decided to break from the church in which she was raised. I was in the National Baptist Church, which is a historically black denomination. And I remember when I was around 10 years old, my favorite Sunday school teacher had been called into the front of the church at the beginning of worship one Sunday morning. And she was outed to the church on the suspicion that she might be a lesbian. And I remember my own sense of horror, even at 10 years of age, without any clear sense of my own identity, of how unjust and mean and non-Christian that act was. When I got older and was married and divorcing and coming into realization that I'm a lesbian, I remembered that moment And I said to myself and God and every other strong person I could think of that that would never happen to me. And so instead of walking away in shame, I just disappeared from the National Baptist Church. For both Candy and Darlene, trying to find a church community that embraced who they were as gay black women was challenging. As they both point out, The Black church has traditionally been the safe haven for African-Americans. The Black church is still often the only place where we can go in order to have the fullness of our humanity affirmed. For Black members of the LGBT community, however, that one place has often been closed to them. When you are same gender loving, you find the church to also be a place of oppression. Not all churches, but by and large, the black church is still struggling to accept LGBT black folk. And in particular, those of us who dare to get married or dare to love. The church isn't always a place of solace. Candy Holmes and Darlene Garner now have a church home. Metropolitan Community Churches that supports who they are as gay Black women. And on March 9th, 2010, they made news as one of the first same-sex couples to marry in Washington, D.C. Darlene Garner and Candy Holmes married as one. While they never dreamed getting married was a possibility, Candy and Darlene leapt at the chance when it came. When Gavril Robinson submitted the photograph of her parents' wedding to Historically Black, she wrote that Black love is revolutionary. It's taking a stand against everything that life has thrown at Black people for centuries. To stand in in the midst of that and say, you know what, here we are, we're strong, we're proud, we love each other. No matter what, we are together and we love each other. Reverend Darlene Garner. Historically, it is significant that Black people are able to exercise choice. We can choose to marry and choose who to marry. 
There was a time in our history where that choice was denied to people of African descent. It's revolutionary that only for 10 years anywhere in this country could two people of the same gender express their love and lifetime commitment to each other by getting married. The revolution continues, and we're part of it. That's it for this week. In fact, this is the final episode of Historically Black, which has been, I know, which has been a delight one. Yes. This has been an amazing collaboration between APM Reports and The Washington Post. Um, More collabs, please, everyone. Yes. But you can still see way more stories and share your own at WashingtonPost.com slash Historically Black. Seriously, get your black family in there. Send it. What you Send doing? Stuff. You're what, historical. What's your, what's your family doing? You should. Your family deserves to be in in the in the Black History Hall of Fame. This is exactly what That's that what is. This is. <laughs> Seriously, this has been so much fun. Thank you all so much for listening to Historically Black. Yes, it was produced by Kate Ellis and Stephen Smith and edited by Mary Beth Kirshner. We had production help from Kai Thomas, Mitch Hanley, Ryan Katz, Steve Griffith, Corey Shrepple, Larissa Anderson, and Johnny Vince Evans. The Washington Post staff includes Julia Carpenter, Veronica Tony, Jessica Stahl, and Tanya Sachinsky. Our theme music is by X144. If you would like to contribute to our online museum of objects from African American history and secure your spot in the Black History Hall of Fame, it's super, super easy. Which is what is unofficially called, <laughs> but not officially, so don't ask anyone about that. <laughs> Go to WashingtonPost.com slash historically black. I have been Tracy Clayton. I have been having a got to, but kind of, sort of. <laughs> and we have been delighted to do this program. This has been such a joy. Thank you for listening. Thank you. 